sermon. Uh, today we're starting a new series, and I'm, I'm super excited about starting a new series, as Chris just said. So I'm doing a sabbatical, so I have four Sundays that I'll be preaching, including today, until I leave. And so I began wrestling and praying, what do I preach for four weeks? What does that look like? And so there, there's several things that went into the, the picking about where we're going to be. Number one, we love to preach expositionally. We love to walk through books of the Bible that we would, would see God's word and understand it in the context in which he gave it to us. And so, so that was a factor. Number two, I was thinking, well, this will be my last time to preach for several months. What do I leave you with? Where are we at as a church? What is happening in the world? Uh, what kind of meal do, do we set up through God's word that will, will, in a sense, sustain and continue to strengthen you? And then three, begin to go, well, we're having so many military families uh, that are going to be leaving over the next few months. And so thinking, how do we equip and strengthen them and prepare them as they're going to look at different churches and thinking about where, uh, as, they, as they get moved by the military, on, on what that church will be and how do they choose that right church? And so with all of those factors coming together, God just kind of directed uh, the attention to the book of Jude. Uh, so that's where we're going to be. That Jude just seemed to fit the bill perfectly for where we're at and to meet the very needs that we are in the church. And so I'll give more details about the book of Jude um, on, uh, on another sermon, but, but let's just get to the purpose of it. Jude is writing for the purpose of strengthening the church. He wants us to live by faith in a faithless world. He wants us to be on guard against false teaching that's trying to creep its way into the church. And this is a message we need to know because there is false teaching everywhere, just as there was in the first century. So there has been, uh, for 2,000 years now, there has been false teaching that's trying to make its way into the church. So Jude has written the letter that the church 2,000 years ago and we today would stand firm in our faith. And so the main point this morning is because God's promises are certain, we contend for the faith. We're going to look at who God is, what he has done for us, and on the basis of those things, of who he is, on the truth of God, on the promises that he's given us, on how we contend for God's, uh, how we contend for the faith. And so I want to invite you to stand. Uh, we are just going to read the first three verses this morning, uh, but we stand here at the reading of God's word because it is God's word, and it's a means of reminding ourselves that this is his word coming with his full authority. Verse 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Jude. And if you can't find it, go to Revelation and turn one book to the left. Verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to all the saints. Let's just pray. Father, Father, help us today to understand what it means to live by faith in a faithless world. How do we contend for the faith? Why do we do this? What does this look like? What is the basis of our contending? Lord, I pray 
that your spirit through your word would strengthen us, equip us, that God, our love for you and your gospel would exponentially increase this morning and our desire to share the gospel would increase and our boldness for the gospel would increase and Lord, that we would stand resistant against false teaching, that we would know the truth, the purity of your gospel, and we would not want anything that distorts it. Oh, God, give us wisdom this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, so what I want to do is, is just begin by giving a little bit of context. So in verse 3, Jude says he wants to write to the church about their common salvation, meaning he wants to write about the gospel. He wants to encourage them about what Jesus Christ has done for them. He wants to talk about the cross. He wants to talk about forgiveness and justification. He wants to talk about what Adiel mentioned earlier, atonement. These are the things on his heart. And he says, I want to write to you about the joy of our salvation. But then he says, but I'm not going to do that because something has happened. A problem has occurred. And so he says, rather, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write that we would contend for the faith. Now, contend means to fight. It means to attack. It means to work really hard. So what are, we, what are we contending against? What is the purpose of this attending? Why is it necessary that we attend? Well, if you go back to, to Jude, verse 4, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed. The word crept means, um, it means that they have come in unnoticed. It means that they've slithered in, just as uh, if you go back to Genesis 3, we see the, the snake slithers into the garden. So false teaching has slithered its way into the church. And in the weeks to come, we'll look at a lot, a lot more about the false teaching, specifically that has come into the book of Jude. But it's on the basis of false teaching coming into the church that he says, look, I'm not going to write to you about the gospel at this moment. Rather, I want to write to you about how we need to stand firm in the gospel, we need to persevere in the gospel, and we need to contend for this faith because everything in this world is coming against us that we would forsake the faith and believe something else. So let me just give a few, uh, four things to note about the false teachers that are coming in to the book of Jude. Number one, they distort the gospel. We see that in verse four. It says they pervert the grace of God. They're misrepresenting the gospel. That rather than, than preaching a, go, a, a pure gospel, they're adding to it. They're removing things from it. They're not giving you God's word in its authentic and pure form. Rather, they're giving man's interpretation and adding and subtracting. Number two, they deny the lordship of Jesus. Look at verse four. It says they deny that Jesus is their master. They're okay with Jesus being Savior, but he's not going to be king. Now, this, this is incredibly prevalent today. People think that obedience is optional, that Jesus has saved us from sin, and we can now live however we want. If you remember, Paul in Galatians 6 writes about, or Romans 6, he writes about this. He says, shall we sin all the more that grace might abound? By no means. And so what, what is happening here is the false teachers are talking about a gospel that does not transform you. It's a cheap grace. 
is what I think Bonhoeffer titled it. And we see this in two ways that they deny the lordship of Jesus. Number one, they just flat out reject the authority of Jesus. We see that in verse 8 where it says they reject authority. They have made themselves the authority to determine what is right and wrong. God's word no longer determines what is sinful and what is loving. Rather, culture does or your ever-changing preferences do. And when they're questioned, they say, well, who are you to judge me? We see this all over the place today. In fact, every single false teaching will deny the authority of Jesus Christ. You will not come across one where they see Jesus as king and Lord as God's word presents him. Every single one will attack the authority of Jesus Christ as being our savior and being our king. Every single one. In addition to rejecting the authority of Jesus Christ... They rely on additional revelation. Look at verse 8. They are called dreamers. This means they rely upon dreams. They rely upon additional revelation rather than God's word. They believe that God has given them additional revelation uh, through dreams, through their thoughts, through their feelings, rather than Scripture. They believe that they have a clear understanding of God because of their dreams and how they feel than the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. So they're coming in and saying, look, I have something new for you. Do you remember how Hebrews 13 ended? Beware of what? Any strange and, remember, diverse teachings? And that's what we have here. This kind of thinking is rampant today. Books are written upon it. Books are on people who have these dreams of greater revelation than what Scripture gives us on the gospel, on heaven, on the very presence of God, and say, this is what God promises you. Believe in this. Hear this. God will not give you a more clear an accurate understanding of the gospel, his will, and his purposes than in his word. He will not give you a more accurate understanding. And I don't know why people are so hungry for dreams and other teachings as if this isn't sufficient here. We hunger and thirst after these things as if we could improve on the 66 books that God's word has given us. But every false teaching will deny the authority of Christ and they will look to deny parts, sections, or the entire gospel altogether. Every false teaching. So the moment you begin hearing someone saying, well, that part's no longer applicable. We don't need that part. God changed his mind. No, no, he's immutable. That's one of the most core characteristics of their being a God. He's unchangeable. He's absolutely perfect. Therefore, if there's any change possible, he is not perfect. He would either, he would either move towards perfection or away from perfection. Either way, he would not be a God worthy of glory and praise. There's no change in God. He does not change. His word, therefore, does not change. Therefore, we do not need to improve on it or add to it in any way. So run from those who place their dreams, feelings, and thoughts at any level of Scripture. Any level. Number three, they're divisive. If you go down into verse 19, it says, that is these who cause divisions, worldly, worldly people. 
And how do they cause divisions? Well, if you look in verse 12, verse 12 gives lots of descriptive words, but they're called hidden reefs. You want to know what a hidden reef does to a boat? It breaks it up. It divides it. It's dangerous. It's destruction. Look at verse 16. They're grumblers. They don't love people. They're always complaining, always grumbling. Remember Israel in the wilderness? That's what they're doing. Always, always grumbling. They're discontent. And just know this. This is a good reminder for us. Anger, grumbling, discontentment, all of those things can be seeds of false teaching growing in one's heart. Which is why we need one another. Which is why we need to encourage one another. Which is why uh, we come alongside one another, reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel. Holding one another accountable. And where we see anger begin to grow, we pray for one another. We confront one another in love. And lastly, we see verse 19, they are devoid of the Spirit. So these false teachers have come in, denying the authority of Scripture, adding or denying the authority of Christ, adding to his word, subtracting from his word, relying upon dreams, causing problems, grumbling, and we are told they're devoid of the Spirit, meaning they are not saved. They are sheep, or they are wolves in sheep clothing. This is the danger that the churches in Jude are facing, and it's so so rampant, so prevalent, so dangerous. He says, I, I can't write to you what I wanted to. I just got to pause on that. I'll write to you later. But this time, we need to contend for the faith. And if that happened then, then how much more do we, I believe, need to do it today as well? We live in a spiritually dark world that is filled with false teaching. And false teaching comes at us in all different directions. It comes from people, pulpits, politics, social media, the state, the schools, We're bombarded with false teaching that promises to give us hope in anything other than Jesus Christ. And I hope you know this. False teaching in the church is absolutely one of the most dangerous things that exists in the world. False teaching wounds, divides, and hurts people all in the name of God. If you've you've known some people that have fallen prey to these, they have no desire to ever come back into the church. No desire. They say, if that's who God is, if that's who the people of God is, I never, ever want to go there again. And some of you actually have been there, know that, and have hurt by, been hurt that way, and it is only by the grace of God that you're here today, and praise God for that. But false teaching is so incredibly real. The wounds that it brings are so deep And it drives people away from the church. And so this is why he, Jude, is adamant that he calls us to stand. We must be on guard. We must be aware of this. We cannot be deceived. We cannot be lulled to sleep. The world, and I mean the false teachings in the world, the demonic power, Satan himself wants nothing more to steal, kill, and destroy. The question is not if false teaching is going to endure the church, but when and how and are we ready? It will come. Every, almost every single book in the New Testament warns us against this. It's everywhere. You go to the, the churches of Revelation So many of them have false teachings in them. Read chapters 2 and 3. They're wrestling with that. So the question is, is how do we contend for the faith in a faithless world? How do we contend against false teachings that are sneaking and trying to come into the church? There's at least two things we need to know. 
Number one, we need to know the basis of our contending, meaning, meaning we need to know what we believe. Second, we then need to know the act of contending. Like, what is it that we do? So today we're going to look at the basis or the grounds of our contending. In another sermon, we're going to look at the act of actually contending. But, we, but what, we want, what I want to do today is show seven truths from God's word that form the ground, the basis, the reasons why can, we can contend for our faith. And I want you to think of these. The, these seven truths form like concrete under our feet. That we would have a sure foundation and that we would not be, be standing on sinking sand and be vulnerable to deception. So what we're going to do today is we're not looking at the act of contending. We're going to look at the reason why we contend, the basis of our contending. What we need to know if we're going to stand firm in the gospel. So we're going to look at seven truths. And I, and I tried to put them, at least the first four, in the first person. So I hope that you can just say those and know that they're true for you. But number one, it says, I am called by the Spirit. Look at, look at verse 1. Jude addresses his readers as those who are called. So I want you to think for a moment. What is the decisive reason why you are saved? Are you saved because of your intelligence? Are you saved because of your looks, your success, your popularity? You just think, why, what is the decisive the means, why is it ultimately that I am saved? And the answer is all by God's grace. Paul says we are dead in our trespasses. Spiritually dead people don't do anything. In fact, do you remember the story of Lazarus? Jesus outside the grave and by his word he commands Lazarus to rise from the dead. And the only reason you and I rise from spiritual death is because God calls us. His spirit works in us. And you say, well, well, how does that work? 1 Corinthians 2 says, Paul, or Paul says that God has given us his spirit, that we would know God, that we would believe in him. In Titus chapter 3, Paul says that it's the spirit who regenerates your heart. He regenerates your spirit. He breathes life into our spiritually dead corpses that we would see Jesus, believe in Jesus, and desire him. I mean, think about it. Some of you can do this. Some of you can't, but try. Do you remember when you first believed in Jesus? Just think back. Some of that's you know, months, some of that's years, some of that's decades. Do you remember when you first saw the wickedness of your sin and the beauty of Jesus? Do you remember when you saw those together? Do you remember when you first felt the joy of Jesus and his forgiveness? and his love, and his grace, and you saw the beauty of the cross? Praise God. Do you, do you know why you saw it? Do you know why you loved it? Do you know why you cherished it? Do you know why you believed in it? Because the Spirit has called you. He's worked in you that you would open your eyes and you would see the beauty of it. Look at, look at Romans 8.30. This will be up on the screen. This is an amazing verse. We're not going to break it all apart, but just, we're just going to touch on it. It says, those whom he predestined, he also called. To those whom he called, he also justified. To those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see the unbreakable chain of salvation? Do not miss 
the unbreakable chain of salvation that Romans 8 gives us. Those whom he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. If you are called, then what are you? You are glorified. You will be glorified. He speaks to it in a past tense, even though it's future, because that's how certain it is. If you are called, then know that your glorification is certain. Jesus at the cross purchased everything you need to be saved. We saw that in the last week of of Hebrews. I encourage you to go back and listen to that last sermon. But this truth ought to make our hearts rejoice and be filled with the praise of God. God has called you, awakened you, given you spiritual birth that you would love him. Number two, why did God call you? Was there something in you that God desired? No. What we see is that I am loved by the Father. Jude says you are beloved. I want you to, I think Ephesians 2 is up here. Ephesians 2 says this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the, notice that, because of the great love. Why is he rich in mercy? Because of the great love with which he loved us. When? Even when we were dead in our trespasses. So was there anything in you that was desirable? Do dead people look desirable? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by by grace you have been saved. So why does God give grace and mercy? Because of his great love. The Bible says God is love, and just as water flows from a fount, so grace and mercy flow from the fount of God's love. Listen, do not ever look at your circumstances to define your relationship with God. We do that a lot. We come to God's word, and it tells us that if you believed in Christ, you are loved by God. You are loved by the Father. We do not need to look to the world for love. You do not need to look, toward, look for love in men, in women, in sex, in success, or position. We look to the cross. At the cross, you see the depths of God's love. It's at the cross you see that God delights in you. He'll watch over you. He promises to hear all of your prayers. Why does he do this? Because he loves you. There's no greater demonstration of God's love than the cross. You don't need a dream. You don't need a vision. You don't need an additional word than these words here. God loves you because he tells us he loves us. And whenever you doubt that, you look to the cross. Because God, out of his love, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. That we would have everlasting life with him. So know that you're loved by the Father. Truth number three. I am kept for the Son. Now the word keep is incredibly important here in the book of Jude. It appears four times. Verse 1, verse 6, verse 21, verse 24. Today, we'll look at the first and the last. Verse 1, verse 24. Verse 1, it says... You are kept for the Son, for Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 24 at the very bottom. These might be the only verses you know in the book of Jude, uh, 24 and 25. But verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. The point of verse 24 is that God, out of great joy, 
keeps us saved in order to present us before the presence of his glory. And we could look at a lot of verses, but we know the glory of God is what? It's Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says the face of Jesus is the very glory of God. So verse 1, you are kept for the Son. Verse 24, God, out of great joy, keeps you saved. So he would present you to his son. So same truth in the beginning and the end of the book of Jude. So why do we stand firm in a world of faithlessness? Why is it that you and I can contend for the faith? Why can we be bold in our obedience even at the risk of our lives? Why? Because God keeps you. Do you know that? God keeps you. He calls you, he loves you, and he keeps you. In the Bible, the church is called the bride of Christ. And in Revelation 19, we're told that when Jesus comes again, he's going to come, he's going to judge the world, but he's also going to gather his bride. He's going to gather the church. And this is what we read. There's going to be a song that's sung on this day. Revelation 19, this is what we hear. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Why will you be at the wedding table? Why will you feast with Jesus? Why will you be clothed in white and presented to the groom of Jesus Christ? Why will you be forever joined to Jesus and eternally satisfied in his perfect glory? Because God called you, because he loves you, and because he keeps you. You see how good? This is the basis of our contention. We don't contend without these truths. And yet we're not done. You say there's more? Yes, there's more. God is an endless fount of love. So you might then say, okay, so I get that God has called me, and he called me because he loves me, and he promises that he's going to keep me right up until the point where he will return and then hand me to his son, present me to his son, like at the, at the front of an altar, like a wedding is taking place. The father is here, and the son and the bride will come together, and the father holds the ceremony of great joy and said, but, but how do I get there, like from today? Because I still have to live today, Right? And so I get that he's going to keep me, but how? How does God actually keep me through all the things I'm going through today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day after that? So this is where we finally made to verse 2. I'm equipped by God. Look at the prayer of Jude. Verse 2, where he says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, now, here's something fun to know about Jude. He loves to speak in triplets. Like the first one was, uh, was uh, called, loved, and kept. The second triplet, mercy, peace, and love. You'll, you'll see him throughout. All these triplets throughout the book of Jude. Now, what you can do, 
Uh, some of you might have some mechanical awareness, and you could take an engine, and you could take apart the engine, and you could look at all the parts of the engine. And there's value to looking at the parts of an engine and going, oh, this is neat how this part works with this part. And, and there's, so you can break things down and look at them individually, but there's also great joy in looking at it as the engine works together because all these parts are, are, are there for a purpose that they would work harmoniously, simultaneously, so the engine would run. And so that's what we're going to do. Instead of taking apart mercy, peace, and love individually, like the individual components, which we could do, there'd be great value to that. We're just going to look at them together. And what's the purpose of them? Well, as Jude writes this letter, he's saying, as you read this letter, God will equip you and give you mercy, peace, and love. So how is it that God will keep you? He'll give you the mercy, the peace, and the love that you need to continue to walk and follow him in obedience. Never, ever forget God's word is the means in which we are strengthened and made more like Jesus. This is why as soon as you have someone denying scripture, adding to scripture, removing scripture, rejecting the authority of God's word, you're moving into some other means which does not exist for the making us ready for that day when Jesus will return. It's through God's word that he prepares us for the day his son returns. So don't ever think that reading the Bible is one-sided. When you're reading, God is equipping. Even right now, through the preaching of God's word, God is equipping. That's what he promises through his word. So think of it like this. Think of a potter. And, and the potter sits at his potter's wheel. And every time we come to God's word, we're like that pot on the wheel. And God is shaping us molding us, transforming us, smoothing us out, making us more and more and more into the image of Christ. I mean, if you think about it, when we know truths like that, why would we want any other word? Why would we be satisfied with anything less than the pure gospel that he's given us in his inspired word? What we need to know is God promises to keep you, but that doesn't mean he bypasses your will and your intellect. He, he works in us. He gives us peace, mercy, and love. He equips us that we would obey him, that we would gather, that we would read his word, that we would pray together, that we'd come and sit under the word, that, we'd see, that we would sing songs of praise to him, that we would perform the very acts of obedience that he calls us to do, loving one another, encouraging one another. All the more until the day that he returns. What we see these first four things as the basis of, um, of how we contend is what God has done for us in the gospel. So these are promises. These are truths of God's word that we now stand on. I am called. I am loved. I am kept. And I am equipped by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That is true for every single person who believes. So that's, that's the grounds in which we stand on. But we're going to shift gears now. We're going to look at, okay, this is what God has done for us in the gospel. And now we're going to look at more of who God is and what he promises also that he's going to do. So number five, we're going to see that God's rule is pervasive. 
We're still standing. What is this concrete that we're standing on? What is the basis of our contending? We'll look at what he's done for us. Now we're going to look at more in depth of who God is. Look at verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So stop right there. Ask yourself, on the basis of the text, have these false teachers surprised God? Has God been caught off guard? Is he going, I I didn't see this coming. What was I thinking? Should have had him, should have prepared the church. I wish I gave him a Bible. I wish I I told him false teachers were coming. Almost every New Testament book warns us against this. In fact, Jesus, Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's happening right here in Jude. Look, Look at Jude 18. Let's go all the way to Mount. This is, this is what the apostles, the ones who, who walked with Christ, the ones who, who God used to, to write God's word. So it says, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own godly pa- passions. Hear this. God is not unaware that there will be false teachers. Verse 4, they were designated for this condemnation. This brings up a lot of other questions, questions that we're not going to get into all today. But what we see is just as God uses the godly, so all throughout God's word, we see him also use the ungodly to accomplish his purposes. I mean, we could go to Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, the king of Assyria. In the New Testament, we can see Judas who betrayed him. The Pharisees, the Roman soldiers, they all carried out Jesus' purposes. None of them thwarted God's word. What we see is all throughout God's word is God's rule is pervasive. There's no person, no power, no place, no organization, no force that exists outside of the rule of God. He is therefore never caught off guard. His purposes are never thwarted. Isn't that good news? So when there's a threat against his bride, we can rest in the fact God's rule is pervasive. He's over all of this. He knows all of this, and he's working in this right now that he would strengthen us in our faith. So the presence of a false teacher isn't that God took a break from ruling the church, but we know he's ruling over this ultimately for the good of the church that we would trust in him, that we would follow him, that we would depend upon his word, that we would demonstrate our faith in him. We contend for the faith because our God rules, because we know he's in control. Next one, I think this is six. God's judgment is inescapable. So one of the major truths all throughout the book of Jude is that um, God will judge the ungodly. And that's something that we largely like to not talk about. I think in church and in just Christian circles, judgment wrath. Um, But Jude gives it to us as a means of comfort, as a means of persevering, saying, you need to know this if you're going to contend for the faith. You need to know that God judges the ungodly, meaning there will be a day when all sin, all the ungodly will be judged, and we will live with God where there will be no sin and rebellion. That day is coming. 
And so Jude, in verses 5, 6, and 7, he gives three Old Testament examples of God's judgment. Uh, Verse 5, the Israelite generation that God brought out of Egypt, he says, he destroyed them because of their grumbling, because of their unbelief. Verse 6, this most likely refers to Genesis 6. We'll talk about it more in a couple weeks. But the angels who rebelled against God and came to earth and had uh, sexual relations with with, um, human beings have been judged and are held waiting final judgment. Verse 7, God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins and immorality. All these examples are examples of rejecting the authority of God and thus rejecting the word of God, and thus they came under the judgment of God. So he uses these examples as a means of that we contend for the faith because we, we know what happens to those who reject the authority of God. We know what happens to those who reject his word, who reject his son Jesus. The point of these judgments is to remind us That our God is a judge. There is a day coming where all evil, all tyrants, all evil rulers, all false teachers will come to an end. And this is ought to remind us of our mission as a church that we go share the gospel. God's judgment frees us from thinking that we need to take physical violence on anyone. Because God promises to do all the judging. So we are freed to simply boldly share the gospel wherever we are, knowing that his gospel is sufficient to save, knowing that we can share the gospel with false teachers, with those who present a false gospel, with those who have been listening to false gospels, realizing that God's word has the power to save. Do you know that? It has the power to save. 1 Corinthians says it is the wisdom of God the gospel is. Romans 1 said it is the power of God to save both Jew and Gentile. When we come to God's word, it not only opens up our hearts and our eyes, but it has the power to open up the hearts and eyes of others. So we cling to it because we know that that day is coming where everyone who does reject God and his son Jesus will experience his fiery eternal wrath. And there is no repentance from that. Hebrews says there is one life to live And when we die, we face judgment. This is our life to live. The decisions that we make here have eternal consequences. And so that's why it's so important that we know we have believed in Christ, that we have loved Christ, that we know we are called, kept, and loved by him, equipped by him, so that we share the gospel with others so they would know those truths as well. This is is the truth, parents. We need to make sure our kids know. This is why it's so important that you hold a position of authority in your house. Do you know that? You teach your kids about authority in the way you shepherd them, in the way you discipline them when they reject your authority. And if you do not teach that there are consequences to the rejection and rebellion of authority, then you're teaching there is no reject, there is no consequences to the rebellion rejection against God, who is the ultimate authority. As parents, that's, that's part of our role. And I know we can beat ourselves up about it and sometimes say, well, I didn't do that well. There are times we don't do that well. But let us remind ourselves, and, and if you have kids that are out of the house, 
then be praying for those who have kids who are in the house or or still in the mix of it at this moment. And let us be praying for those who have their kids outside the house, if they've not yet come to Jesus, that they would still seek to shepherd and love them in ways that they can. But we must teach and communicate to not only our children, but to everyone that gathers with the church, that there are consequences for rejecting Christ. And this world says, no, there is truth. your truth is whatever you want it to be. You just find your purpose, find your reason for life, go after it, do it. And that's a bunch of junk. Because you can find all you want and think you're really happy and on come on judgment day when God says, have you believed in my son? And you say, well, no, I didn't. I, I took my own path. They will not be a part of the wedding feast. And so we must teach that. We must know that. Know that yourself. This is meant to bring comfort and to push us further into the arms of Christ. Going, I don't want any false teaching. I want to run from anything that would proclaim or teach a different gospel. And thus, we would plead with our family and our friends and our loved ones that they also would not listen to those things. And I encourage you that if you do have loved ones, and some of you, you're not able to have those conversations for various reasons, pray. Let us never, ever, ever forsake the power of prayer. Because our God, because you are loved, hears every single one of your prayers. So let us pray for our loved ones. Let us pray for those who do not yet know God. Let us pray that they will believe in him, that they will join us on the wedding day and see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Last one. God's might is matchless. Let's look at verse 24 and 25. We won't spend a lot of time here because we're, we're going to spend the whole last sermon on these verses, but it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. So we've said he loves us. We said he, he called us. We said he keeps us. We said he saves us. We said that he rules. We said that he, um, he judges. But you might say, but how does he do that? And is he, is he really going to be able to do that? Like, how sure are we? So that's what brings us to this last one, where we see God might is matchless. Because in verse 25, it says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So, um, verse 25 gives the reasons. Why we know. Because God is infinite in his glory. He's infinite in his might. He's infinite in his dominion. He's infinite in his authority. And how long will he be infinite? Like, when does it expire? Look at the end of verse 24. Forever. There's no expiration. The God we serve is forever infinite in power and might. And so, actually, I have a, I think, I don't know if there's another verse, but, uh, or another slide, but this is going to be our memory verse. So you have homework in this series. And, and on the last Sunday in May, was it like the 29th? Uh, so I'm like, we're going to say this together from memory with no slide. We'll go back to blanks like we did the Apostles' Creed. Remember that? 
Uh, some of you are going, blanks. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll put all blanks up there, and we'll, we'll work our way through. But your homework between now and then is, is to meditate on these verses, to know these verses, to memorize these verses, because everything hangs on these verses. If our God is not glorious and mighty and have everlasting dominion and authority, then he cannot save us. But if this is true, if this is true, and he's forever matchless in might, infinite in power, infinite in authority, infinite in dominion and rule and glory and majesty, then we know that all the promises he's given us are sure. The testimony of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ proclaimed that. As we looked last week, the empty tomb proclaims the authority of Jesus Christ, that he is who he said he is. He is the Son of God who came to save us from our sins. And if that is true, then we know the Father is the one who sent him, who has raised him, so that we will be forever with him. Um, These seven promises are like concrete under our feet. If we don't know them, if we waver in these truths, you, you ever stand over on the Pacific beach in the water? I know it's cold, but you, you ever do that like barefoot and the waves come? What happens to the sand underneath you? You ever notice you get shorter? It just somehow just keeps moving out from underneath you, and yet you're standing. You're not moving. That's what happens if we don't know these truths. It's almost imperceptible that you're moving down. Until eventually, you're all the way down. That's what he's warning the church against. They've snuck in. And if you're not careful, the teaching's going to spread. And just like standing on the Pacific beach as the waves come in and you start sinking, if you're not aware, it'll one day be too late. So he's saying, contend for the faith. Remember the promises. Come up out of the stand. Stand on the rock. Stand on the concrete that God has given us in his word that we would be bold in the gospel. And so these are the reasons why we contend for the faith. So this is what we're going to be looking at as we go forward. This is the faith that we've been given. So know that you are called by God. You are loved by God. You are kept by God. God for his son Jesus. You are equipped by God. And all this is possible because his rule is pervasive. His his judgment is imminent. And his might is matchless. And he promises that all of his words will come true. And so let us contend for the faith on the basis of who our God is and what he has done for us. And so I'm going to pray, and then the ushers will come, and they'll dismiss you to come row by row to, to partake of the communion and go back to your seats, and we'll, we'll take it all together. Um, and as you get ready for this, I want to encourage you, if there is any reason, anything in your life that you say, I need to be asking forgiveness for, I've not been trusting in some of these truths. I just want to encourage you to do that now as you wait to come and and partake of communion together. But let us repent of any sin that is needed so that we can take uh, this communion in full celebration of what God has done for us in his son Jesus. Father, we thank you for today. God, may we contend for the faith because of who you are, because of your truth, because of your promises, because of your glory, because of your might. 
Because at the cross, your son Jesus purchased everything we need to be saved, to stay saved, and to be with your son on that day at the wedding feast. Praise God. God, I pray that we know those truths. And if there is anyone in here who does not know your son Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God, may, may they repent and believe today that there is truth, there is forgiveness, there is hope, there is comfort in the name of Jesus alone. Uh, There is no other means in which we are atoned by. Our sins are covered. God, may we know that truth. Lord, and if we have begun to fall prey to any false teaching, anything that denies the authority of your son, the authority of your word. May we repent of that this morning and may we come running back to you. And God bless this as we take communion. In your name, Jesus, amen.